Well, I showed that video when we started this series, The King and the Kingdom, and we'll probably revisit it another time or two uh, through this series because I think it does uh, just a great job of helping us see the big picture, that God, throughout history, God is guiding the details of men. He is guiding our lives to reestablish his dwelling, his domain, his kingdom again here on the earth. And just as you saw in that video, and just as we saw uh, two or three weeks ago now, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 through 3 together, and we saw God's good creation, and we saw that it was very good, and the significance of that, that we had peace, shalom, perfect rest and relationship with God that was broken at the fall, and how even now we live in the midst of the repercussions of that. That God was the creator king, though, and that we are accountable to him. Then last week in Genesis 22, we saw with Abraham, God is not just the creator king, God is also the relator king. That he is a God who desires and initiates relationship with us, even though we don't deserve it. And so God established a covenant relationship with Abraham by grace through faith. And God called Abraham to prove, to demonstrate his faith in one of the most unthinkable requests the world has ever known, that he would have to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. Now, as we know, the good news was God provided a way. God provided another sacrifice, and that was meant to be a picture for us, a living display through history of what's going to happen someday, that God would provide a way, that he would provide another sacrifice on our behalf through his son, Jesus Christ. But one of the the ways that we can trace how God is working out his kingdom today in the world is by looking at the covenant relationships he establishes. And so last week we looked at Abraham. Now we are going to fast forward some 430 years to another covenant, the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And so we will look this morning at this idea that God is not just the creator king. He's not just the relator king. God is a holy king. That as a holy king, he is set apart, and he alone can save us. But through salvation and through relationship with him, he invites us to rejoin his kingdom. He invites us to live in holiness before him. And so we're going to see that today in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. Go go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. Today's sermon is entitled, The King and the Insufficient Kingdom. Not because God is insufficient in any way, but as we're going to see this morning and as we work our way through this passage, we'll discover very quickly that we're insufficient. We can't live up to God's holy and perfect standard for us. So go ahead and stand this morning in honor of the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 20 is what we'll be reading together this morning. The word of the Lord says this, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God. Father, as we look at your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would open our eyes. God, that you would help us to see with the eyes of our hearts truly who you are, to understand that you are big and glorious and good and holy. So, Lord, as I bring your word this morning, Father, I pray that you would speak. God, I pray that I would decrease and that you might increase, Father, that you might allow us to be changed through the power of your holy word. We thank you that it has the power to change us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main idea this morning is that the holy king alone can rescue, and he invites his people to join him in his kingdom and draw near to him in holiness. That's really important. The holy king alone can rescue He alone can save, and he invites us to rejoin his kingdom and live with him in holiness. And so we're going to talk about what does that mean for us this morning. But before we go any further, before we take the next step into this sermon, I just want to stop and remind us of something as we talk about God's holiness. And it's this, we are unworthy. You see, it is far too easy for us, those of us especially that have grown up in church and been around church our whole lives, to come to a building like this on a Sunday morning and honestly just be thinking that we're doing good just to show up. It's far too easy for us to think somehow that that God should be content with a a one-hour worship service where we come and we hear a nice sermon and we go home. And if we think that, friends, I just want to tell us this morning, we're wrong, God is not just pleased with our trite little presence. God is a holy God, and we do not deserve relationship with him. You see, we live in a society full of entitlement. 
We live in a society where we feel like we are owed things, and if we are not careful, we will assume that we are owed a relationship with God. And I just want to remind us that is not true. We do not deserve a relationship with a holy God. We are unworthy of his presence in every way. So much so, just to press the point, I would just say this this morning. I'm actually unworthy to speak of him to you. Michael, how do you get off saying that? Well, if you look in John chapter 1, verse 27, John the Baptist said that he was unworthy to even unstrap the sandals on Jesus' feet. And if he was unworthy to unstrap the sandals of Jesus' feet, friends, I am unworthy to speak of his holiness to you today. You see, the truth is I am inadequate I can't relay effectively. I can't do God justice when I begin talking about his holiness. When I talk about his sacred worth, his infinite power, his unending goodness, I cannot relay these things to you in the way that God deserves. But because of grace, because of Jesus Christ, I'm going to give a feeble attempt this morning. You see, we need to be reminded that God is holy. We need regularly to stand in awe of our King because if we do not, what we will start doing is worshiping ourselves. We will make ourselves King. See, I was in college and uh, some buddies of mine over the course of a summer, uh, me and three buddies had a privilege to take a road trip literally all over the country. So we went all the way around kind of the perimeter of the nation. It was a great trip, one that I will never forget. Uh, it was a, a formative experience in a lot of ways, and uh, we started in South Mississippi, and the first stop on the trip was the Grand Canyon, and so uh, being c- some college guys, we decided we are going nonstop to the Grand Canyon. The only time we stop is for gas, and so if you need to use the restroom, you better work it out at, you know, whenever we're getting fuel, right? And so we're going, we're excited, we're taking off. Uh, some 26 hours later, we arrive at the Grand Canyon. We had not thought about at all what time it would be when we arrived there. So we arrived at about 2 a.m. in the morning. And uh, we pull up and we're like, well, this is cool. Now what? <laughs> you know, it's dark. And uh, so we decide, well, you know, we are pretty tired. Let's try to get a little rest. And as you know, sleeping in a car is tons of fun. So at 5 a.m., as soon as we had a good excuse to get out of the car, we went ahead and we got out and we approached the Grand Canyon. And we could not see it because it was still dark. But as the sun began to rise, me and my friends experienced something honestly indescribable. I don't know if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, but pictures literally, and this is a a trite phrase, but pictures don't do it justice. It is so vast. The colors are so bright. The beauty of God's glory is so evident in that moment. My friends and I stood there at the very edge of the canyon for over an hour. We just stood speechless. And then to my amazement, what happened was we began to turn around thinking we were ready to go, and we couldn't because there were hundreds of people behind us. But here's the deal. I didn't even know they were there. You see, it was so awe-inspiring that hundreds of people had come and crept up behind us, and their reaction was our reaction. Everyone stood in awe. Everyone stood in silence. Even I watched little children, they would look at their moms and dads and they would whisper, Daddy, do you see that? You see, they were in awe of what they were beholding. And friends, you and I, when we come to this place, we're invited to be in awe of God. 
Are you ready to do that this morning? Are you ready to stand in awe of a holy king? He is good beyond our wildest dreams. I want us to look at verses 1 through 4. The first big point that we're going to look at is that the holy king alone can save. Verses 1 through 4. I just want to read verse 4 for the sake of time. It says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That is an important phrase. One of the things that's happening immediately is God is expressing relationship. He's expressing care. He's saying, don't you see how I bore you up on eagle's wings? Just as an an eagle cares for her young, I have cared for you. As she swoops in with strength and might and speed and power to rescue, I swoop in with speed and might and strength to defeat Pharaoh on your behalf. I have brought you, not just saved you, I've brought you to me. It's an important idea that God is communicating there. Not only is he communicating that they should remember what God has done, he's also communicating especially for something for Moses. You see, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses met with the Lord, guess where? On that mountain, on that very mountain. He interacted with God through the burning bush. And in that moment, God told Moses, Moses, take off your sandals. Why? Because the place that you are standing is holy ground. God is stressing his holiness from the outset. Not only that, he's also stressing to Moses that he keeps his promises. He told Moses, this will be a sign for you. You shall serve me again on this mountain. You're about to go and face something really scary. You're about to go and stare Pharaoh down in the face and tell him to let my people go. But my sign to you that I can fulfill my sign to you that, that I am able, my sign to you that I am the holy king who reigns all things will be when you worship me again in this spot. And so here it is. God has kept his promises. God has displayed his holiness. And I just want to give us a real brief definition this morning on what is holiness. I've shared this before, but I think it's a helpful idea. Uh, the children's prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. One of the things that's happening in those first two phrases, God is great and God is good. That's a very, very simplistic way to say that God is holy. God is not like us, is what we were saying in that prayer. His purity is perfect. His value is infinite. His justice is total. His power is unending. Let that sink in for a minute. His power is unending. You see, every piece of energy in the universe, every tree that grows, every nuclear bomb that's ever made, every ray of sunlight, all belongs to Him. It's all His. His power is limitless. And so this is the God with whom we interact. Job. When Job had walked through his sufferings, he had... A privilege. He had the joy of standing before God, and he actually was allowed to question God. God quickly put him in his place. God quickly reminded him, who are you, O man, to question me? But after Job sees and understands, this is what he says. Listen what, to what he says after he glimpses the Holy One of Israel. Job 42, verses 5 and 6, he said this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. See, I've heard of you. I know about you. But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. Job is saying, after I see you, 
I loathe myself. Why? We see, we are good. We are made in God's image. The image is marred by sin, but, but we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But here's the deal, friends. In comparison to a holy God, in comparison to his goodness and his glory, we are repulsive. He is so far beyond us. He is so good and right. When our sinful selves enter into his glory, the only possible reaction is Job's, to repent in dust and in ashes because of who he is. As we look at this idea of his holiness, now I want us to kind of shift and see this. God is holy even in the way that he saves. That's how holy God is. Even in the way that he saves, that phrase, you yourselves, in verse 4 of of Exodus 19, you yourselves saw, he's saying, remember Israel, remember how I saved you, remember where you came from. Let's just think on that for a minute. I think to understand why only God can save, we need to remember what he has done for Israel. Pharaoh assumed the position of God. He positioned himself as one of the pantheons of the Egyptian gods. He sat as one who was totally unquestioned. His rule and reign and authority were complete. And so, in uh, a sense, when God chooses to face off with Pharaoh, it is a battle of the gods, back and forth, except there is no back and forth. God wins, unquestioned. Egypt was one of the world's first superpowers. Before then, no nation had ever experienced military might like theirs. No nation had ever experienced uh, wealth like theirs. Even today, we marvel at the wealth of the pharaohs. And when I lived in Dallas, Texas, um, the display of King Tut came through. And I got to go to one of the museums and see the glory and splendor that King Tut lived in. Everything the man owned was wrapped in gold. Why? It didn't even make sense. He just put things in gold just because he could. This was a nation that for a bunch of slaves to try to rise up, for a bunch of slaves to try to be set free, was unthinkable. They could crush them in an instance. And in fact, they did crush them for some 430 years. You see, almost twice as long as our nation has existed, they lived under Israel, God's people lived under the oppression of the Egyptians, and it was total oppression. Make no mistake about it. They were cruel taskmasters. Not only did they force them to work tirelessly day in and day out to pursue whatever means the Egyptians had, they murdered their children. They killed their firstborn sons. Why? Because they could. Because Pharaoh thought he was God. And so we see that there's no hope for Israel. There's no way that they're going to escape. Who could resist the man that kills their children? God can. God uses one of those very children that should have been killed by Pharaoh. God uses that one and puts him in Pharaoh's house. He has Pharaoh's resources raise him, educate him, help him, prepare him. And then we do know in sin, Moses was a sinful man. He commits a murder, and he's exiled. And he is perhaps sitting and thinking he's wasting his life in the wilderness when God appears to him on Sinai in Exodus chapter 3. God tells Moses, 
that he has chosen him and that he is going to send him back. And just as Abraham's faith was tested by sacrificing Isaac, that was unthinkable for him. In a very similar sense, I believe it was unthinkable for Moses, the stuttering murderer, to think he would go back and face the most powerful man on the planet. You see, to face him down and to tell him, let my people go, would probably result in Pharaoh laughing and then Pharaoh killing him, unless God was with him. And so God asked Moses, and God proves Moses' faith by sending him back and allowing one of the most fantastic chain of events history has ever known to happen. As you well know, Moses returns. And he faces down Pharaoh, but he doesn't do it in his own strength. He doesn't do it in his own power. God is with him, and the ten plagues ensue. And in every instance, in every way, God crushes the world's first superpower. He displays that as great and powerful as Pharaoh is, he may have the power and the ability to kill your children, but I have power over him. And so God, in a myriad of ways, displays that he alone can save. Israel is set free because of the ten plagues. After the tenth plague, the the fact that the firstborn children of the Egyptians die, Israel goes and they reach then the impassable uh, obstacle, the Red Sea. And here they are. It's too deep. It's too wide. It's too much. For one small nation, men, women, children, cattle, all that they owned, how could it be possible for them to get across this thing? And, oh, by the way, here comes Pharaoh, and he's coming to kill you. Now what? God does what only God can do. He intervenes, and he makes a way where there seems to be no way, friends. And we need to not miss the significance of that, because that is a living picture. Just as Abraham and Isaac were a living picture for us on Mount Moriah, this moment is a living picture for you and for me. You see, Egypt was the land of slavery, the land of bondage, the land of death for Israel. And before they were saved, they were stuck there. In the same way, friends, you and I are stuck in slavery and bondage to sin, and it will kill us. The only way of escape is the salvation of God. And so as God parts this Red Sea and as he makes a way where there seems to be no way, he doesn't just save Israel and bring them to the wilderness. Again, they are a picture for us. Where did he bring them? What does verse 4 say? I brought you to myself. I brought you to me. And this is exactly what God does for us. He doesn't just save us and then set us off to the side and say, now I've done my job. He saves us and brings us to himself. Who else can do that? Who can save in that way? No one. No one can do that. God alone can save. He is the holy king. And he doesn't just stop there. I want us to look now at verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8, I want us to see that the holy king invites his people then to join his kingdom. The holy king is inviting his people to join his kingdom through this covenant relationship. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. It says this, Now therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So right away, the importance of what is happening here, the importance of this covenant relationship, I just want to say, almost cannot be overstated. Uh, We can see that in the fact that uh, chapters 19 through 24 are devoted to the working out of this covenant, to the spelling out of all the terms and conditions. But not only that, then the following chapters in Exodus are accountings of how this is beginning to be played out. And then if you add on and you begin to think about, well, then what is the rest of the Old Testament? In essence, the rest of the Old Testament is a commentary on how Israel has decided to live inside of this covenant relationship with the Holy God. So the entirety of the Old Testament is basically spelling out for us, Israel lived up to the covenant, or as we see far too often, Israel can't live up to their end of this covenant relationship. And so what I want us to do for just a moment then is to ask this question, what are the terms of this covenant? What are the terms then that are being put forth? Um, I believe that there are at least three terms on God's part and one big term on Israel's part, okay? Three terms on God's part in this covenant and one uh, for Israel. The first for God As we have read, God promises to make Israel a holy nation. He promises to make them a prized possession. And so there is a level of privilege that is coming with this covenant relationship. If Israel chooses to enter into this relationship with God, then out of all the earth, did you catch that? All the earth is mine. But he says to Israel, out of all the earth, you will be special. You will be set apart. You and I will have something unique that no other nation will have. This is a beautiful privilege, but we must not miss the responsibility. What is the responsibility of Israel that comes with that privilege? Well, it's this. You see, Israel then, if they were actually to live out this covenant relationship, they would be a dazzling display for the world to see of what it looks like to be in right relationship with God as a nation. They would actually be a showcase of God's character for a watching world. And this is what they are called to do. They are called to be a holy nation. Don't miss this, friends. If you know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, you are called to be set apart. You are called to be a living display of God's goodness to a watching world. So God will make Israel his prized possession and a holy nation. Next, God will be Israel's king and defender. Did you notice? He says, I will make you a what? A kingdom of priests. That's important. Again, we go back to Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? God promised him that he would have a son and that kings would come from him. And so here it is. It's happening. God is faithful. Remember, we closed our sermon last time where uh, Abraham died in faith. He didn't see the kingdom. He didn't see his offspring possess the promised land. He died in faith, trusting that God would do it. And now here we are, some 430 years later, and guess what? God doesn't fail. God is 
making it a reality. God is making his kingdom come here on the earth. It is going to be his way of working out his kingdom. So, if they are going to be a kingdom of priests, then who's going to be the king? Jesus, God. God himself will be the king of the people, and we're going to talk about that next week. That is a crucial point. God is saying to them, I will be your king. And as their king, God will do two things. God will bless them, and God will protect them. He will be their shield and defender, and he will be ultimately their greatest blessing. And so God makes some promises as the covenant begins to be spelled out that he won't put on them the plagues that the Egyptians walked through. God puts some promises out towards Israel to say, if you follow me, if you obey me, then I will bless you. He says your crops will be bountiful. Good things will happen. That's important. You see, God alone can make that promise and actually keep it. God alone can tell someone, I will keep you from disease, I will keep you from famine, I will keep you from sword. No other king can make that promise and actually follow through. But God can. He has the authority to do so. Then God says this. He also says, though, if you choose to disobey, if you choose to break my covenant, you will experience curses. You will experience famine. You will experience war. You will experience disease. Guess what? God can also deliver on that promise. And so God is telling him he alone should be the king of their lives. Not only that, I want us to see the final term. God will be merciful and gracious to Israel. He will be a forgiving God to them. You see, God is holy, and he knows right away I'm dealing with fallen, broken people. And so he institutes the sacrificial system to them. Don't miss this. It's so important. You see, I think a lot of times we look at the Old Testament and we say, where is grace? What kind of a God is this? Where is is grace in the Old Testament? God's grace is in the sacrificial system. God is coming to an unworthy, unholy people, and he's saying, I love you. I I want you to draw near to me. I want you to be a part of my kingdom, but you must be holy. There's one problem you can't be, and so I will allow you in bloody fashion to take a lamb and kill it and place it on the altar as a constant reminder of what your sin earns you, as a constant reminder of what you actually deserve. But this sacrifice will be allowed to stand in the gap for you so that you and I can continue our covenant relationship. It is a covenant of grace. We must not miss that. So now, then, what is Israel's responsibility? What is it that Israel is to do? Well, um, a part of this covenant, as I mentioned, is 19 through 24, those chapters. Exodus 20, verses 5 through 6. We're going to read that for just a minute because I think uh, inside of the Ten Commandments, there is a nugget that's kind of hidden there that helps us understand the heart of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Jesus told us, what is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God. Watch this. Exodus 20, verses 5 through 6. The Lord is speaking. He says, you shall not bow down to them, referring to idols, referring to images. And he says this, uh, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know what Israel's responsibility is? To love and obey. It's so simple that a child can understand it, but it is impossible for us because we're fallen. You see, God is telling Israel in this moment, right, in the the heart of the Ten Commandments, he's saying, you either love me and you allow me to sit on the throne of your lives or you hate me. There is no middle way. There is no indifference. If you are indifferent to me, then you despise me. So God says, will you love me? Will you obey me? And what do the people say? We will do all that the Lord has commanded. We will do all that the Lord has commanded. There's a tragic irony in the midst of all this. There's a tragic irony in reading God's commands to love him. You see, God is commanding Israel to love him, and that would be like, I think, you or me being commanded to enjoy our wedding days. See, to enjoy your wedding day is a no-brainer, right? It's a good day. It's inherently fun. It's inherently good. It's a beautiful moment. It is special and sacred. We don't need commands to enjoy our wedding day, but the sad truth is, friends, we apparently do need commands to enjoy God. We need to be commanded, sadly, to love God. It should be as natural for us to enjoy God as it is to enjoy the best days of our life. Guess what? He's the author of those days. And so why then can't we enjoy him as we should? Why do we not love him as we should? Why do we have to be commanded? Because our hearts are warped by sin. Our sin knows no bounds. We love ourselves first. We make ourselves the king of our hearts and the king of our lives. And God rightfully tells us, you shall not do that and have a relationship with me. You cannot do that and have a relationship with me. Which brings me to the last point. The holy king demands holiness from his people in verses 9 through 20. That's really what those verses are all about. We're not going to reread those for the sake of time. But God is telling them, why is he asking them to consecrate themselves? Why is he making them wash their clothes? Why is he saying, if you touch this mountain, you will die? Why is he saying, don't go near a woman for three days? What is the purpose of all this? You see, from the outset, from the very get-go, from the foundation of this relationship, God is saying, be holy. If you want to draw near, you must be holy. Israel was commanded to keep this law. Israel was commanded to walk in holiness and that we need to not miss this. It is good and right. It is fitting for God to make this demand because that's who he is. His law reveals his nature to us. He is a holy God, but it is bad news for us. It's bad news because we can't fulfill it, and neither could Israel. Before Exodus is over, and just a few chapters later, what happens? Moses is coming down the mountain, and to use kind of today's terminology, the Ten Commandments are hot off the press, right? And so God is walking down, I mean, excuse me, Moses is coming down the mountain, and what does he find? Israel is already breaking the Ten Commandments. They're worshiping a golden calf. I think our response oftentimes is to look at them and be like, what are you guys thinking? What are you doing? Don't you get it? God just told you. Remember what he did for you when you left Egypt, and here you are. 
But friends, we need to realize Israel's problem is our problem. You see, our sin knows no limits as well. Israel worshipped a golden calf, and we kill our unborn children today without apology. That nation was guilty, the entire nation, of the sin of worshiping that idol. And make no mistake, we are guilty, all of us, of the sin of murdering our children. At least in the 60s and 70s, we didn't have the technology that we do today. At least then we could claim ignorance. But now we know. We see their faces. Now we know that they recoil in pain. And here we are, without apology, without excuse, we kill the unborn. The fifth commandment stands against us all. You shall not kill. We are guilty, every one of us. You see, the Old Testament law shows us the same thing that it showed Israel. It shows us the purity and power of God's white-hot holiness, and it shows us the reality of our sin. We know that we are a broken and sinful people. It screams to us that we will never be justified by trying to keep God's law. We need someone to stand in the gap. Where can we turn? I'm glad you asked. Book of Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul, reflecting on this idea, says this. He says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You see that? What's the law doing for us? It's showing us you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. Galatians 2.16, the same author on the same idea, he says this, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put on our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, God's law is good, as I said earlier. God's law, make no mistake, is not abolished today. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law not to abolish it. And so when we stand before God on Judgment Day, friends, when we stand in front of a holy God, the law will judge us. His righteous law will stand, and it will be the criteria that we are held accountable to, and left to ourselves, each of us will be found guilty. It is guaranteed. But just as God gave Israel grace in the sacrifices... God gives us grace in a perfect sacrifice. God sent his son, and he stands gladly in the gap in our place. He allows himself to be murdered, tortured, and killed so that we could be set free, so that we could have our rest back, so that we could know the goodness and grace of God, that we could draw near to this holy king. God, through Jesus Christ, invites you today to live in holiness with him. Do you know what should compel you to live a holy life? What compels us? What should compel us? Is it fear? Should we be afraid that God is going to get us? Well, if we don't know him, maybe. Is it that we want God's blessings, and so if I try to earn it and I try to be good enough, then that God will uh, have mercy on me? No. 
2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Did you hear it? What drives us to live a holy life? You see, it's the love of God. It's the fact that the King of glory died for you and loved you and rose again so that you could be set free. The love of Christ is what compels us to actually work out the holiness that God has already given us. And so I just want to close with this idea. Has your faith changed you? Has your faith shaped you? You see, to truly know God is life-changing. For Israel, after this moment, this nation will never again be the same. After this moment, they are forever changed by this encounter with the Holy King. From now on, they will live in this covenant relationship. They will raise their children differently. They will labor and work differently. They will worship differently. They will even speak differently. Everything that they do will be colored by their relationship with this holy king. We are called to be no different. Our lives should be shaped by our covenant relationship with this holy king. And so... When you look at your life, is there clear evidence that your faith is changing you? Is there evidence that you are purposefully, daily, yielding your life to the King of kings and Lord of lords? Do you love his law? Do you see that his word is good? Do you rejoice in him? Do you find that your soul sings? Here's what I mean. It's a hymn that We all know very well, and I'm going to adjust just a few words, don't be mad at me, uh, for the sake of of our 21st century years. But it says this, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds your hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, your power throughout the universe displayed. We look, friends, we live at a beautiful, beautiful place. Just look outside. His glory is all around us every day. He says this, And when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he came and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to you. How great you are. How great you are. Does your soul sing this morning? To know him is to be changed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the Holy King. God, we recognize that we are unworthy. Lord, we recognize that that we don't deserve relationship with you. Father, we thank you that you, in your great grace, in your unspeakable goodness, you chose to send your Son for us to rescue us. What God can save like that? Father, we pray that if there's anyone in this room, that today would be the day, Lord, if they don't know you as their King, if they haven't seen you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would turn from their sin, that they would trust in what Jesus has done his life, death, and resurrection, and that they would accept that sacrifice in their place, that they would follow you the rest of their days.
Father, we rejoice. Our hearts do sing when we reflect on your goodness to us. May we live lives that display that to the people that we know and love and work with. We ask these things in your name. Amen.